Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum, and I'm so happy you've made the decision to join me today. This week's episode is pretty fun and is basically a double-length episode. Jameson was a character that showed up on the scene in the 1980s WWF, and he was the co-host of the Bobby Heenan Show. He was an awkward, nerdy character, one that wasn't exactly a simple fit into the WWF. Eventually, he was Bobby Heenan's regular foil on primetime wrestling and later even managed the Bushwhackers. Eventually, he just sort of faded away and no one in wrestling circles online even knew who he was. So when I was writing my blog under the ring, which predated this show, I made the attempt to find Jameson. It took me a while and there were some twists and turns and involved people thinking Jameson was comedian actor Andy Kindler. But eventually I did find him and we connected. I wrote about it. I met the man behind Jameson, John Giacomo, and we've stayed in touch. He's an actor and a comedian. His son is a well-known actor, James Giacomo. You've probably seen in multiple films and on the show, Kevin Can Wait with Kevin James on CBS. John's got some wonderful outside in and inside out perspective on pro wrestling few can provide and a great glimpse into the magical period in the 80s and 90s that people really enjoy learning about. So here we go with my interview with John Giacomo, a.k.a. Jameson. So pleased to be joined by a unique cult figure in pro wrestling history, my old buddy. It's Jameson, also known as John DiGiacomo. John, welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. How are you, Phil? Thanks for having me, bud. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm excited to get the story of Jameson and you out to a new uh, kind of platform here, too. So let's start with a description from you on who Jameson is and how he came to be. Okay. I know it, but I think it's better coming from you. Okay. So um, I was uh, doing stand-up, and uh, friends of mine started this murder mystery company, which was 50% scripted scenes and 50% improvisation. And I'm not an actor. I wasn't an actor at that point. And they took me on uh, because of my improbability, because you, you, you do interact with the audience. Long story short. I became this playing Jameson, this huge uh, media locally, not not nationwide. And um, uh, Vince McMahon came to one of our shows and said, that's the guy I need to go toe to toe with Bobby because I, you know, the success, my success at that show was my improbability to talk to the, you know, the, the customers coming to see the show, the, the audience and, um, and interact with them and all that. And I know Vince thought I was hilarious. I had him beat red uh, a couple of times and sure enough, that was a Saturday night and uh, Monday WWF called the, producers to say how do we get in touch with this guy and and that's how this character that I never knew I had because I was pretty um macho buff um doing during my short comedy stint up until that point and this guy was a total pathetic nerd and um it was the only role that they hadn't cast yet and they, I said, I can't play a nerd. You got to get a really good actor. And especially because I helped them write the show. And I showed up. They said, just come to the first rehearsal. Just 
And I just put a pair of glasses on, crossed my eyes, and found this inner pathetic person. Um, and and it was great. And I've had some, you know, some great moments with it. Did I answer the question? That was a really good question. That's, that's who Jameson is. And I guess who is John DiGiacomo? Because, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that that was like kind of your first acting gig. So yeah. you know, what made you get involved in acting? And it, it's kind of crazy that it kind of led you straight into the into the WWF in, in 1989. Really? Um, again, I mean, well, you know, out of school, I was a um, benefits pension consultant. Um, you know, Wall Street money. Uh, but I was like not winning the war. Um, that you some people go through in their 20s of keeping life in perspective and um staying away from drugs and alcohol and and i didn't really succeed at that and i just thought at, at one point i'm gonna die unless i stop doing this and people have been telling me my whole life well i should be a stand-up comic because i would always take over rooms and and stuff and I said, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I had some money saved and I uh, went out and tried my hand at stand up. And my friends put me in the show I just talked about for 20 minutes. And uh, Vince came. And, and even when I was at first at WWF, I didn't really think about acting. I was wondering when I could get back to my stand up career. And because it became somewhat um consuming to be under contract to them and still be able to book um gigs and and all that and then you know kind of the industry kind of approached me do you have representation and they got me to go out on a couple of commercial auditions and i i booked my second audition and um and then i thought you know what i gotta learn how to be an actor because it's so much more money than stand-up comedy, unless you're, you know, Jim Gaffigan, who I, I, I adore. Um, but if you're not that, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough go, stand-up comedy. And suddenly this acting gig was, I didn't need a part-time job. I didn't have to be a bartender right? um, until later on. Uh, but not a bartender, but had to get another job. So you were the co-host on uh, what was a, kind of an experimental uh, thing that the WWF did, which was the Bobby Heenan show, which aired after primetime wrestling in the most PG manner you're able to. How much fun was the Bobby uh, Heenan show to pull off? You know, it was the fir very first thing I ever did for them on camera. Um, and... You know, I was intimidated. There was, you know, all these wrestling uh, icons in the room. Some not, some not on camera anymore, but who have advanced to Vince's um, hierarchy, hierarchy, executively speaking. Um, and it was just very intimidating. But I just, you know, went with it and. It was so much fun. Bobby was, oh my God, he was a love. He, 
He really appreciated me. I know he thought I was good with him, that I fed him. And, um, and it was just more fun than, you know, you could imagine that, like, especially when we would go to commercial and yeah, Bobby was great. We, uh, we had a lot of fun, got to know each other beyond our wrestling gigs. Um, and it was just so much fun and, and you know, how they did it. Like we were shocked that they canceled it. Um, I know the, the, you know, all the people from Vince down were real happy with it. It was, it was a laugh. I mean, yeah. And, but at that point, USA controlled content right. and they put the hammer down on it. Nah, done. Don't do that anymore. So, but I have the, have all of those videos. <coughs> Excuse me. I had, on VHS, like they, after every show, they would mail me a, a, a tape in a, in a WWF, um logo cassette holder plastic um i got every show i ever did on uh on vhs they should be worth money yeah they should be i'll say too after after he died uh you know I, uh, I got to meet i got to meet bobby heenan one time and he was amazing the one time that i met him back in uh, 2004 i mean literally you just meet him and he holds court with you for 20, 25 minutes. And he was just, it was so just how, so quick. Was he? Yeah. 2004. He was still healthy. He was, uh, he had recovered from the throat cancer at that point was in remission, but I mean, he was sharp as a tack. It was amazing. I mean, literally it was like a live stand up act, like right in front. Yeah. I, I, I was going to a signing uh, with a couple of friends of mine when his first book came out. And uh, we actually completely missed the signing because somebody was running late. So then I walk into the bookstore, which was uh, uh, bookends out in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And I was like, oh, I, I got to go at least get a copy from my friend that I told him I would pick one up for him. So I walk into the bookstore and who's in the bookstore standing by himself looking at board games, but Bobby the Brain Heenan. And wow. he just said, get your friends out of the car. He's like, I'm waiting for a ride right now anyway. I'll talk to you guys. We got to sit down and talk with him for about 25 or 30 uh, minutes, and it was absolutely incredible. But yeah. I was going to say the one thing that came out mostly about him after he died is people started referring to him saying that he may have actually been the most talented person in the history of pro wrestling because he was a good wrestler. He was and probably the best at two different things, one of which was managing at ringside and the other was commentary. And it's just such an amazing, amazing talent. Would you would you agree that he was probably the most talented guy you came across? There's not even, and no disrespect to anyone else, um, there's not even a close second. Yep. Um, that's how good he was. He's probably the only guy, personality, that I met in my three years there. Um He's, he's probably the only guy that if he chose Hollywood instead of wrestling, he'd have been big also. Not that he would look, not saying he would have been bigger than he uh, was a bad career move, but he was that talented 
um, would have been great in movies if he concentrated on that. Would have been great in, would have been great in anything. I'm telling you, Bobby was so funny that he could have been a really effective, dramatic actor. And I say that because comedy is so much harder as an actor than drama. And he, like, you know, how he kept a straight face and do that. He was a talented guy. My biggest kicks, I swear to you, one of the things that pops into my mind the most about looking back on my years was my most fun times were when I broke Bobby and we had a reshoot. Um, <laughs> and and it happened at least once a show. And he didn't break me. He didn't ever break me. And it was just, it's just a different mindset that I had. It was much easier because he was the engine. You know, I was the fan belt. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he, um, he, yeah, I, I, you know, there's not enough great words to say about Bobby and his talent. And beyond that, just the sweetest, the nicest guy. He was always so good to me. And I, I love that he enjoyed talking about life away from the studio. And yep. uh, yeah, and I'll, you know, he'll always be, be. And you know, my, my biggest sorrow is that the last time I saw Bobby was probably 93. Um, even though I went back to do a couple promos and um, the magazine and, and stuff, I never saw him in those years. Um, but the last time I saw him was 93. And the next time I saw him, he was already at a point where he couldn't talk. And right. he wrote um, and uh, wrote notes to his wife and she would say what he was thinking. And, and he signed his book. I have an autographed copy of his book on that day. And then he, he was gone less than a year later. And I've gotten to see Vince, which is another great story. Um, for the first time after 20 years, uh, probably even more, less than 25, but more than 20. Um, another great story. And, and uh, I haven't seen um, anyone in all the years since 95, the last time I was there, I haven't seen anyone until seven or eight years ago when I saw events. And then I saw a lot of people. It was great. Yeah. I, I thought it was the funniest thing when I kind of found you back in, uh, in 2010. Oh my God. Basically I had heard that Jameson was the, uh, the actor comedian, Andy Kindler. And I, uh, and I was like, wow, this is great. We've, we finally found who he is. And then Andy Kindler himself kind of spoke up and said, yeah, no, I'm not. 
<laughs> and the uh, thing about that is, I ended up following Andy Kindler, and he followed me. We were talking to each other a little bit, uh, but he was very confused by the credit. And then, uh, you know, ended up with help from some fans and some people who lived in New York, you know, pinpointing where you were at that point. And Joe Bruin, who does the New England uh, Hall of Fame, was kind of doing the same thing because he was trying to find unique guests for his what he promotes every year too so what was it like to kind of dip your toes back into the wrestling world once uh once you once uh, jameson sort of uh, resurfaced again you know um it, you know it was like i had been tipped off probably a couple of years before what you're referring to um that there was this search for who jameson is by friends of mine and you know, I, I never, it's funny, Andy Kindler didn't want to take credit for it. Uh, and I was in no rush to either. I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but I wasn't in a place then to like go online and 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 somebody would send me a link to, to Andy's IMDB page where it says that he was Jameson and <laughs> aren't you going to do something about this? And and I was like, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I don't know Andy, but I'm sure somebody else put that up. You know, I was not. Then somebody got my work email and sent a, a, a nasty email to Andy saying, how dare you take, but making it, he got my email. It sounded like it came from me. Um, but I've spoken to Andy and we're Facebook friends and we had a great, a great catch up not too long ago. And uh, yeah, it's all good. But finally, uh, what happened was I was running a, a club in New York City. Um, and these comedians came. I used to book the comics and the music. And um, these comics came in, wanted to produce a show there. And we were talking. And somehow Jameson came up from me, of course. And they were like, get out. They happened to be wrestling fan comedians and said, can we put you on our poster on our website to promote our show? And I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. And um, I said, but, and I'll make an appearance, but they wanted to do a special appearance by Jameson, WWF. And I said, but I'm not going to get up there as Jameson. I'll get up and welcome the crowd uh, or bring me up there i'll say a few things but and yeah that's fine that's fine that's fine and because of that poster and phil i don't know how you found that but joe happened to be i don't know that he had some link if google if like keyword searches um or wwf searches that he would get access to whatever anybody was posting and you know, you called and said, I want to meet you and write about, you know, and he called and said, we want to, we want to bring you up to give you a special reward at the Hall of Fame. And, um, and I was like, and, and here's another, like, real regret I have is that it took until 10 years ago for me, for me to really get how much wrestling fans appreciated my character. When I was doing it, I gave my all. I try to be funny. I try to, you know, 
make a point. But I was looking at it as an acting job and not as how great it was to be, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't recognize at that time how great wrestling fans are. And when I left the WWF, for me, it was somewhat of a relief um, that I can now pursue acting full time and not be tied down and never realizing, you know, just how big that was to a, to a worldwide audience. Not that I was a superstar or anything, but because I was this, you know, weird, char cultish character, there were tens of thousands of people that really were curious about who Jameson was, where is he, what's going on? And, and that's been a beautiful thing, but a regret that I didn't recognize his popularity, not, you know, in that cult uh, following. I didn't recognize it when I was actually doing it. For me, it was just interesting as somebody who's, I, I mean, I followed wrestling since I'm, uh, you know, four, four or five years old. It was mostly because, you know, you, you kind of appeared on the scene sort of out of nowhere, sort of, sort of off everybody's radar. And then, you know, you were the one guy that like, I didn't have a track on, you know, it was kind of like, I, I don't know whatever happened to this guy. And with, with my job at the time, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try because why not? You know, so I think what I ended up getting was actually a comment on the blog that I wrote looking for you of somebody who saw you at that club you were at at the time and, and said, hey, hey, this is the guy. He's the events manager at this at this location, you know, reach out to him. So that was when I ended up connecting with you on email and then and then got your phone number and then did the story. What I'm curious from you. you know, and you visited I from did. all the way upstate. You came <laughs> down to the nightclub, to the bar. Yeah, um, that was awesome. I still have that picture. I do too. And you brought your buddy, John. Yep, John. Yeah. Yep. How did I forget that, John? Yeah. <laughs> what right. what parallel? I'm actually going to see him this weekend too. Um, what what parallels do you find? You know, you you have a theater and an acting background now. What parallels do you find between theater and acting and pro wrestling? I think a lot of it is the same. The more I think about it, it's the levels of comfort performing. Guys getting typecast. I think a lot of old school wrestling people wouldn't necessarily like it, but it's entertainment at the end of the day, and that's that's why a character like yours works. What what do you, what do you see as kind of like the same, and what's different? Uh, I don't think there's anything different. Um, even when you're doing a scripted scene, you know, you, there's so much variety you could bring to those words. And um, improv is, it's everything. And that was wrestling. It was all improvisation. There were guys that, were great in the ring, athletic and well built, and you know just were had great, um, you know names. And but when they got in front of the microphone, they just you know weren't. There was just a handful that were really 
and and this was me observing as I'm standing backstage and I'm on and and um there were there were more there were just some people that were great in the ring but those that were good in front of the mic too um were guys that could have made it in the business it, as actors and you know there's some i have in my head that were great and then there were the ones that um you didn't really see on the mic you know you didn't really um but anyway that's the parallel is that it's it the guys that were really good on camera were the guys that had an acting talent whether they had studied it or not it could you know most people are born with something that if they choose that line of work and study it they become great actors and um there's definitely a parallel there Who, who's somebody that you worked with back then in the wwf other than bobby heenan of course who you kind of saw as having the full package uh entertainment wise when you were there well ted ted dibiase and ted and sherry oh sherry, um, sensational sherry and i think you know ted's great sherry was so good that um she made ted even better yep. and they were when i say um knew when and when when they had to turn it on were always good mr perfect mm. he was just so sarcastic and wry and and i mean was uh, i thought it was hysterical um it uh, I think he was underused, if I had to be honest with you. From and he like was an great. Actor, <laughs> he was hilarious and and great. Hacksaw was good. Um, um, you know, you know what's funny is Brett was good, but he seemed to get these golden opportunities to. Um, Brett wasn't a guy who, um, like the guys that I'm mentioning, they were funny off camera. Mm -hmm. Brett was just the ultimate professional that did well in any situation. You know what I mean? Like he was, he looked good. He, he, he was a very athletic. Um, when he was a heel, he was a great heel when he was, a good guy. He was a good, good guy. Um, everybody who didn't love Bret Hart. Um, yeah. so he stands out, um, in a, in a slightly different way, just being, you know, the most all around, um, Ted was great, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, Ted and Sherry that, they used to crack me up even when I wasn't working with them. If I was in the green room or watching them set up, well, like they, we did this episode of uh, where Jameson in during prime time, Jameson got the million dollar belt stuck around his waist and <laughs> he was, in, he was in the audience and he was wearing a bathrobe because he couldn't hide the belt. And, you know, leading up to the, last moments of the show where they they find me they find the belt on me 
um, leading up to all that, all the like break-ins to them freaking out that somebody stole the belt. Those moments, knowing them when they're not on camera, how funny it was to watch them, you know, freak out. They were awesome. I, I loved them. And uh, I'll give you a guy who probably could have been a great actor who was so different than what he portrayed. But Mike Rotundo, IRS, that was a great gimmick. I thought it was a great gimmick. And he was so not like that guy. But if he didn't sell it every single time, he was another one that I really respected their acting ability. And uh, I'm going to move to him a little bit now, too. Like, so I'm at Extreme Rules 2014 at the Meadowlands years ago, and we, we'd known each other for a little while at that point. And then I realized, you know, this little kid looks really familiar to me that's singing Whole World in His Hands with Bray Wyatt and John Cena. And then I realized later on that night, that's your son making his WWE debut as the child in that segment with Bray Wyatt and John Cena. For the listeners who might not have been around wrestling as long as some of us, Bray Wyatt is Wyndham Rotunda, which is actually the son of Mike Rotunda. So yeah. What, what, what was it like for you to be back in that environment oh that day? God. Well, first of all, um, I had no influence at all over my son getting that gig. Um, we were actually leaving for LA Monday morning. And we got the call Friday night from his agent that um, WWE called and they want our best eight to 10 year old for their pay-per-view event. And um, he was amongst, you know, a hundred plus clients of theirs he was killing it at that time. He was in a big movie that was up for an Academy Award. He was a Disney kid. He played Kevin James' son. Like, he was red hot. And he was the first call. They called me and said, um, you guys interested? It's Sunday night, and it's right in Jersey. And and I was first feeling like, yeah, I don't want to do this because we got to be on a plane the next morning, and these pay-per-view events run late. But I thought about the connection. How could I deprive my son of living what, you know, at least for one night, what I live, these productions. And, and I'm thinking they want him for a promo. I had no idea what it was for. So I said, yeah, all right. Well, maybe they'll shoot it and we can get the hell out of there and <laughs> get on our plane the next morning. And when we get there, um, Vince comes right over. He gets down on one knee and um, to James and explains what he's going to be doing. And little by little, I'm hearing this is the feature match. And they're going to put, the, are you afraid of the dark? We're going to stick you under the mat before the, the match begins. And then somebody's going to tap you and you're going to come out. You're going to do that. Blah, 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 blah. And he gets all done with James. And he looks up at me because he's down on one knee. Otherwise, he'd be looking down on me. Um, he says, you must be the father. I said, yeah, Vince, do you, you don't recognize me? He said, you know, you look really familiar. So I made the Jameson face, which is basically this. <laughs> and he was like, we hadn't seen each other. That was what year was that? 19, uh, 2014. 
Okay, so we hadn't seen each other in 20 years, probably wow. a little more than 20 years. And he gave me a hug. He said, oh, I got to bring you into the truck. Um, there's the people there that remember you that is still working here. And, um, and it was a great night. Uh, my son had done um, a really famous NFL commercial leading up to that. And, and it was airing on every football game. And when word got out, that's the kid from the commercial, I swear to you, wrestlers were coming up to him. And <laughs> asking, oh, I kid you not. Um, he loved the Bella Twins. They, they flipped out over him. It was really, it was so great. Um, can't even tell you. And I was getting texts all night from friends of mine that are wrestling fans that did I just see what I think I saw did you know all these uh, these texts it was really a great experience it sucked get it stunk getting up in the morning to uh get on our flight but it was it was a really great experience that's fantastic. So I, I, I want to ask you about three different people that I'd like to get opinions on kind of of your, you know, interactions with them. And you could do them whatever which way you want and order wise. But I, I want to hear about Vince McMahon. I want to hear about Gorilla Monsoon. And I want to hear about Kevin Dunn, because I feel like you probably had some interactions with all three of those guys. And there's so much out there about all of them at different points. So just if you can kind of uh, sort of, you know, summarize those guys for me. Okay, so Gorilla, just such a a lovely man. I mean, a heart of gold, um, you know, uh, uh, I think really appreciative of the wrestling business and what it meant for him and his lifestyle and livelihood and uh, just a genuinely not a mean bone in his body. Um, and worthwhile um, as a off camera and on camera. Served his purpose beautifully for Vince in terms of commentating, you know, being a foil for Bobby. Um, so, yeah. Now, the one thing is, even though he was around a lot, we never really worked together. I can't, uh, other than him commentating yeah. on on any of my matches, which was only about a third of my, you know, I was only with the Bushwhackers probably for less than a third of my time there. Um, so that's where more Gorilla um, had any connection to Jameson. He didn't do prime time. Um, he didn't do any of the other stuff I did. And the first two years I was at WWF, -E um, I didn't go on the road. Everything I did was in the studio. Right. So, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't there for the, um, we didn't work together, even though we had met and we'd spoken and, and all that. All right. Who else? Kevin Dunn, I'm interested in because there's so much stuff out there about Kevin Dunn that I don't think even people realize what his role is or what his importance is. Okay. 
Who else was it? Because Vince I McMahon. might want to leave the big one. him for third. <laughs> the big, the big one was Vince McMahon. You know, yeah, that. I'd rather talk about Vince. Yeah, um, go ahead. Well, not more than Kevin. Just Kevin's going to be more of a, uh, you know, especially the way you brought it up. There's a lot of stuff out there that I, I'm not aware of any of it. I'm going to just give you my. But yeah. get to Vince um, from the moment. I first saw him live, which was at the show I was doing. From that moment, like I went up and introduced myself after the show and he told me what a great job I did. I had visions of, well, maybe he'll call, you know, um, which was a Saturday night by Monday morning. Believe me, I had forgotten that that was even a, a chance when he did call or they did call. Um, but always always was a fan and in my corner appreciative generous you know i mean he was just the man now i know there are people that don't have that take on him and I think there's some justification for some of them feeling something, but never to me. And I don't, I wasn't around for any of that. All I know is me and Vince and nothing but great. You know, Vince and Hulk once we were, one of the few tours I did was through Texas. And after the show, these guys went out every night usually strip club or, you know, the whole, whole cast and, and a good part of the crew. And that was not my thing. Like I, uh, I wanted to just get back to the hotel. Um, but there were times that like, James, let's go. You come with me. (laughs) And there was actually in that right in front of me where Hulk was telling Vince, no, 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 Jameson's riding with me. And Vince is like, no, Jameson, Get in my van. Um, like, that was so cool. Like, I know. And here's the other thing that I feel really indebted to Vince over is that it started to become obvious to me that there were, in Vince's creative team, I'm talking old school, you know, in the wrestling business, 30, 40, 50 years. His that helped him matchmaking and his inner circle, basically. Right now, for TV, and I'm going to give Kevin Dunn a mention right now. When I got there, I never dealt with anyone except Kevin Dunn in terms of what I was doing, what the storyline was, what the 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 setup was, because we were never given scripted lines. It's all improv. But these guys were awesome. And they set me up so well in so many of these episodes. Um, But once primetime ended and everything was shot on the road and and I had a tour, the other guys were more involved, storylines. And I know of, you know, some dissension among the old school guys 
that Jameson doesn't really belong. And Vince always, you know, he, he, it's almost like he disregarded that because he was always looking for something somewhere for me to fit in. And, you know, I, I, I know he thinks I was talented and brought a different element. Like I know he always appreciated what I did and, and that was great. And it wasn't just that, that I love him for, but it was just how he treated me and, and, you know, did his part to make me fit in because, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a dressing room with, you know, guys that are very unlike me. I was not a behemoth, um, athlete. Um, but there were a bunch of people that reached out and made me feel comfortable. And there were a few that kind of let, you know, what, what are you doing here? Not that anybody ever confronted me mm -hmm. and said, what are you doing here? But that made it just feel, you know, you can just tell by the looks and, and all that. That's kind of Vince in a nutshell, though, always kind of thinking ahead and thinking of things that can be different that can make his show better, too. And, you know, yeah. I, I think the descent you'll hear from the old timers then is the same descent you'll hear for certain from certain old timers now for new ideas that happen, too. So I think it's just kind of the way yeah. that wrestling and, works. And, and and nobody ever. In the old school, there was one guy who um, just made it obvious um that set me more on a the thought of you know trying to get a better read on people to see what you know what might be up for me because i wasn't happy traveling i really wasn't i i i couldn't do any other acting i couldn't audition because um and and thankfully that only lasted you know three quarters of a year maybe i don't know seven eight nine months i don't know um, but it was just not, and again, I was at a, a time in my life where it was an acting gig for me. Yeah. I wasn't going to be a millionaire from it. It wasn't like it was like, you know, look at me, I'm buying a boat or it was uh, a good payday, but it was all I could do. And, you know, having said that, I, I kind of try to concentrate on what future I might have there or what, um, and you know, it was really happy that we came to a mutual decision that, yeah, um, I need to go through this play off Broadway or um, it was, it was, and you know, what's so cool. Uh, I told you I'm moving. I found a box that I haven't opened in probably six or seven years. And I found all, I found my actual release letter. Oh, wow. The original, signed by J.J. Dillon. Um, and then I found a contract signed by Vince McMahon. And I found my wrestling license and the medical exam that got me my wrestling license. And all this original great stuff. When I was there, there was this guy, Michael, I'm not sure, Feinberg, I think, okay. who was... I think a comedy producer genius. He he was so responsible for the comedy and 
for, I would say I, I started there in 89. He had to be there a couple of years already. And um, he left while I was there. And Kevin was his second in command, was his assistant producer. I, I think he had a better title than assistant producer, or, but whatever. But Kevin was great. Kevin totally bought into everything Michael was proposing. And Kevin had great, he was a great communicator. He was, he was definitely uh, um, one of those guys that you want to make laugh, but also it had like the team spirit kind of thing where, yeah, yeah, do that. Like, you know, like was a very, what, what's the word I'm trying to use? He was very um, motivating. Say again. Motivating. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way of that, if you did something that he thought was really funny, you felt good about it and knew it was funny because he was not just anybody's. So anyway, Kevin was a really good second guy when I got there. And But Michael was probably like uh, the did the bulk of the ideal work. Kevin was great buying in and adding to yeah. it and all that stuff. So when Michael left, suddenly there was this void um, of ideas. And there were a couple of episodes that we shot that where where Kevin was, you know, almost fighting for his life. Um, and really relying on me and whoever else was on that night to come up with our own things. And there was one bit he did that was just involving me that was just not, uh, you know, wasn't really that I wasn't quite sure um, where the humor in it was and it just didn't come off well. And, but he was young and very new to having to be that guy yeah. that was re totally responsible for what was going out on the air. And when I first heard, it's probably about 10 years later, I'm going to say the early 2000s, mm -hmm. um, that he was, uh, what do they call it? But he was the head of, He's an executive producer. <laughs> he was, he's the guy now. Yeah. And he has been for a while. And it, when I heard that, I felt really good because I know he's capable. He was just thrown into a very unexpected jam. And, um, you know, I think he's probably had some, you know, what, what I'm sure it's ruled his life though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a job you got to live with not so much downtime because you vacations with family, your mind is only 50, 50 at that point, 50 with the family, 50 still with the job. And that's just life in the WWF. Yeah. Um, 
So in that, I hope he got everything else out of life that he wanted to. I loved him. I still do. I mean, I got no reason to stop loving him just because we don't see each other anymore. But I so rooted for him in those early weeks. And then, boom, we were right. It was only a few weeks. And and then we were in Raw. And Raw yeah. was probably easier for him to be the boss, the creative boss at that time, because it wasn't so much... The the old timers were creating the the match matchups and the storylines and all that, and he just had to work on promos and and stuff. And I was really rooting for him, and I was so I'm so happy he's where he is, and I hope he got everything out of life besides that. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to move to something we call the three count now. It's going to be three relatively quick questions and your answers. So first question, other than Jameson, what role made you the proudest to perform? Um, Augie. In, um, in a film I did, a short film that was that won a bunch of film festivals, and I was the lead character, and I got a, an audience uh award what do they call that audience audience choice award um at steve buscemi's film festival and, and it was a it was a really good role and um that's the first thing that comes to mind what was the character he was a barber um um approaching middle age late 30s and it was um just a barber shop where, you know, friends congregate and um, and there's a twist to, uh, I'm put on, my character's put on the spot. Why aren't you, mar why aren't you marrying Kim? Why, you know, uh, and um, there's this whole twist where he's set up um, to uh, propose to this girl because he thinks he's going to lose her, but it's, an illusion. It's something they set up. It's like a, a scam. And, um, turns out I knew the scam was going on all along, but anyway, that's, uh, Oh, let me tell you about the film. I'm most proud of. Okay. Can I, can I add this? Yeah. All right. So about right before COVID the December before COVID. So I guess that's 2019. Yep. Christmas 2000. Okay. So James, my son actor, that was little Johnny in um, Extreme Rule, um, successful acting career. He's cast as the lead in this high budget film that was independent, that was shooting in LA and before COVID, but they didn't want to fly him in for a short film for the auditions, they would Skype with him. They saw him in an episode of a great show called Rami on, um, I think it's Hulu. Um, they saw him in what he was a guest star and they said, that's our kid. So they hire him and they say, James, your resume is unbelievable. Who do you study with in New York? And he said, well, my dad's an actor. He's the only coach I ever have. And they said, wow, that's great. 
we didn't hire the actors yet to play your father or your uncle in the film. Send us his picture and we will let him audition. So he sends my picture in and the guy tells James, tell your father to read for the grandfather. <laughs> that was my grandfather's story. And um, I got the role and we shot it. Um, and COVID really, to go from, you know, wrapping production to when the film was actually released, the, the filmmaker is Australian. And after he wrapped, he went home for uh, Christmas and um, they, we be, suddenly we were in lockdown. He couldn't yeah. leave the country and for like a year. And then it was like, if he left the country, he wouldn't be able to get back in. Right. So it really, so the film was just released this summer, the end of the summer, and got picked up by the Toronto Film Festival, which is huge. It's like the third yeah. largest in the world. And, um, and it actually got nominated for Best uh, Dramatic Short. And I was so happy with what I did. Um, you know, I'm only in like two or three scenes. And, uh, but James kills it. He kills it. Um, it's a sad movie. It's about, um, um, uh, you know, how they happen to use an Italian American family, but it, it's not uncommon. Um, showing how abuse is passed down generation to generation and uh, what this kid, this 13 year old kid does to try to put a, a stop to the cycle. And um, I play the grandfather. So I was an abuser and I abused my son who is James father. And, uh, he abuses James and good cast. Um, what's what's the name, name of the film if people want to check it's, it out? It's called uh, I'm on Fire. And the father is played by Lilo Brancato, who's a great actor. He was, as a child, he was uh, Robert De Niro's son in the Bronx Tale. And okay. he was on The Sopranos. And James' mother is played by Jamie Lynn Sigler, who was also uh, on The Sopranos. <laughs> Sopranos, yeah. She was Meadow. Right. Um, so real good cast. And I play her father-in-law, his father. And um, it's a beautiful film. It's it's really cool. And that is probably my second favorite character. We're going to make that and, the second part of the three count because that was better than anything I had on my, on my uh, notes uh, here. Um, last question. If you could recast John DiGiacomo in the WWE, what would you see yourself doing? What what kind of personas are they missing that you would be able to perform uh, or would have been able to perform, you know, 25 years ago? You mean if I continued there? If, if you weren't Jameson, what else? Oh. What other kind of character could you be there? I, I think, I, you know, it's so funny. Jameson, I swear to you, is the only professionally is the only character I ever played as a nerd, as a goofy 
guy. Um, I got a lot of auditions because of my success there. Never booked anything as a nerd or as this pathetic human being. But one of the things that, you know, it's so funny that like what basically what I got cast as was this like rough um, mafia uh, Spanish drug lord or drug or drug cartel, but tough guy. I was in really good shape. I mean, I was really cut and when I was doing Jameson and um, it was so not who I was. I mean, I could do my, when we went live to the, the arenas, I could do my Jameson thing, go to the dressing room, take a shower and come out as John and nobody ever knew it was the same guy. Um, but I think I could have been definitely not a wrestler as in shape as I was, you know, I was like 165 pounds. Um, but as a manager, as like either a mafia type or, um, or, you know, I like Razor Ramon strikes me that I could have been his Spanish, uh, manager like uh yeah but but more italian more italian yeah. anything like that play that mafia guy but funny and you know toothpick in the mouth and yeah well where do you see what we do you know that kind of thing i think i could have done that for them i think so i i think a dark side of jameson would have been a fun eventual turn to kind of like jameson finally snaps at all the people who were picking on him all those years and, yeah. uh, and decides to just kind of uh, turn another way. So, yeah, um, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, I was, I was, oops, there goes my audio. So we had it for the whole time. But uh, I was just going to wrap, uh, John. Uh, thank you so yeah. much uh, for joining oh, me great. today on Under the Ring Pro this Wrestling Conversations. This was great. This is one of the best one of these I ever did. Uh, you know, you, sometimes I forgot you were in the room because I couldn't shut up. Thanks once again, everyone, for joining me on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I'd like to thank Jameson, a.k.a. John DiGiacomo, for joining me today. I'd also like to thank Joe Bruin for also finding him. And what the heck, I'd also like to thank Andy Kindler for not being Jameson and steering me away from Andy Kindler. Today's episode is the season finale of Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. We're at least going to be taking a break for a bit, but keep up with whatever I'm doing on Twitter at Under the Ring or on Instagram. PJ Strum. I'm not finished yet. Since this is the last episode of the season, I'd like to send out some thank yous. Thanks to Paul Wood for the logo and some early guidance. Thanks to Miguel Fernandez for editing and helping with social media graphics and producing some shows. Thanks to Lynette Espy for producing and handling social media promotion. All stars, each and every one of them. I'd also like to thank the guests I've had on the 37 episodes of Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. Rhea Ripley, Matt Hardy, Brian Alvarez, Court Bauer, Billy Corgan, Matt Taven, Anthony Bowens, Tony DeVito, Thunder Rosa, Nick Tilwalk, Serena Deeb, Sonia Deville, Matt Cardona, Eric Bischoff, Davey Richards, Damian Priest, Vic Delicious, David Crockett, Wheeler Uta, Liv Morgan, Bill Carr, Dave Meltzer, Brian Gewertz, Brian Gewertz again, Eddie Kingston, Austin Theory, Larry Dallas, Lori Gassi, Swerve Strickland, Crowbar, Raquel Rodriguez, Hale Collins, Brian Anthony, Fred Rosser, Brian Gewertz, Ricky Morton, Mike Bucci, John Giacomo. I'd also like to thank all the PR and communication folks around pro wrestling who were a huge help to me along the way. Adam Hopkins from WWE, John Alba from Podcast Heat, Jared St. Laurent from MLW, Kyle Davis, Joe Galley, and Mark Kruskal from the NWA, 
John Schneider and Mandy O'Donnell, AEW, Derek Kukulich from Q Communications and Ad Free Shows, Estevania Aquaviva from 12 Books, Matthew Mitchell from Jones Works, Alan Wojcik, Jamie Girardi, Kelly Sutton Skinner, Jeremy Marcus and Farbud, S. Nahari from New Japan, Michael Lombardi from Northeast Wrestling, and Donnie B. Don Bucci. I have had a blast doing this show. I plan to be back soon. I've enjoyed bringing you as interesting a pro wrestling conversations as I was able to find. Pro wrestlers are the most interesting people I know and have ever met. And I hope you had as much fun listening to them as I had having them. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be able to produce this show. And I'll talk to everybody really, really soon.